Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 380th edition of Talk to Antuzzi, brought to you today by the American Health Information Management Association. Of course, we know them as AHIMA. And joining me this morning as my co-host is the very, very popular Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer, MD Incorporated, and good morning, Erica. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. This morning, our lead story is about burnout and what coders and clinical documentation integrity specialists need to know about burnout. Uh, reporting our lead story is going to be Dr. Megan Curtazzo. Also reporting on burnout will be nationally prominent psychiatrist Dr. H. Stephen Moffick. And Lori Johnson returns with her Talk 10 Tuesday coding report. Indeed, there's a great deal of regulatory news coming out of Washington, and Stanley Knoxon is standing by with his popular segment called Reg Watch, and you have a talkback segment this morning. I was going to talk about SEP 1, but that is going to have to be tabled until next week because I need to address the final rule that just came out. Indeed you do. We have much news to report, and we begin this morning with Tim Powell, who's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University, inviting you to sign up for a free three-day trial to the ICD-10 Monitor Educational Webcast Series. Click the tab above or visit the ICD-10 Monitor Bookstore. Here now is Tim Powell. Thanks, Chuck. And in terms of the final rule, it appears that hospitals in a limited number of states have used urban to rural hospital reclassifications in the past to inappropriately influence the rural floor wage index value, CMS said in the fact sheet, to address the unanticipated effects of rural reclassifications on the rural floor and the resulting wage index disparities created by urban to rural hospital reclassifications. CMS is going to remove the urban to rural reclassification for the calculation of the rural floor wage index beginning in 2020. So what does that mean? Hospitals across the country have paid a base amount for wage and non-wage operating expenses under prospective payments. A base, base payment for both wage and non-wage related expenses is multiplied by the DRG or diagnostic related group weight based on the diagnosis of the patient. But wage costs in this computation are first multiplied by a wage index because wages fluctuate across the country. Here's where the loophole was created. Base amounts are also different for urban and rural areas. A special rule said that if the rural wage index for a state was higher than the local urban wage index, the urban hospital would be reimbursed under the statewide rural wage index as a floor. Before the current change, some hospitals were allowed to be reclassified into rural uh, from urban under certain conditions. So how does this work? Let's say that there are only two rural hospitals uh, or, or no rural hospitals in a state. If an urban hospital with a high wage index is reclassified as rural, the wage index for many and sometimes all urban hospitals in the state could rise dramatically. CMS has known for years that some states have played this game, including the states of Massachusetts and Connecticut. Uh, indeed, some of the consultants pulling off these loopholes increases bragged about it, and that's one of the reasons that it was brought to CMS's uh, attention. So who's complaining? Since all Medicare funding changes are budget neutral and one state gets more, all the other states get less. Massachusetts hospitals obtain an additional $367 million in Medicare payment in fiscal 2012 that otherwise would have gone to other states. 
I'm always glad to see everyone play fair. I still think that the overall concept of wage index favors states with high costs. Is it fair to pay California hospitals vastly more than Florida hospitals because wages are higher in California? Additionally, the computation of wage indexes are based on data included in Medicare cost reports. Well, if it made sense, it wouldn't be Medicare, would it, Chuck? And with that, back to you. Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 monitor national correspondent. It's Tuesday. It's August 6, 2019. And on this day in history, President Lyndon Johnson signs the 1965 Voting Act. This is the one that prohibits discrimination in voting, and, of course, the rest is history. You're listening to the 380th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Plan to join 600 of your peers at the 2019 Clinical Coding Meeting, September 14th and 15th in Chicago. Join sessions and conversations covering CDI, Revenue Cycle, Professional Services, Facility Services, 2020 Code Updates, Compliance, Auditing, and Innovation. If you're looking for cutting-edge coding education, peer-to-peer collaboration, and engaging discussions, look no further than this meeting. Attendees earn CEUs and CNEs, and all advanced full registrations receive a free AHIMA Gold Standard 2020 ICD-10 codebook. Visit ahima.org slash clinicalcoding for more information. Here now with the Talk 10 Tuesday Coding Report is Senior Healthcare Consultant, Lori Johnson. Good morning, Lori. Good morning, and welcome back, Chuck. Good morning, Erica. The inpatient prospective payment final rule was posted on Friday, August 2nd, 2019 at 3.53 p.m. Eastern Time. There are 2,273 pages, and it will be posted in the Federal Register on 8-16-19. I was anxious to see what the CCMCC changes that were finalized in this final rule. What I found was a surprise. Most of the suggested changes in the CCMCC status were tabled until fiscal year 21. There were 18 codes from category Z16, which is um, resistant to antibiotics, um, were changed from non-CC to CC status. A total of 75 CCs were added, including the Z16 additions. The remainder of the additions are for new diagnosis codes. Five additions were made to the MCC list, and these are all new diagnosis code. CMS did note the number of received comments on the CCMCC status changes. This reaction should be positive reinforcement that your comments are read and are impactful. CMS will accept comments until 11-1-19 for fiscal year 21 suggestions on changes to the IPPS methodology. As for new technology, 25 products and services were reviewed. Three were discontinued from last year, and those include Defibrotide, Stellara, and Zimplava. Nine are continued from last year. 13 new applications were received for fiscal year 20, nine were approved, and four were not approved. The payment methodology was changed from 50% to 65% or 75% for certain antimicrobial products of the average cost. So that change went through. 
One last bit of news is that the fiscal year 20 ICD-10-CM official guidelines for coding and reporting have been posted on the Center for Disease Control website. And that happened either very late last night or early this morning. You might want to take a look at pressure ulcers and iatrogenic injuries. At least that's as far as I've gotten. I have information posted on links from LARI that provides the URLs and highlights for the important information out of fiscal year 20. So good luck to everybody. I'm anxious to hear and see what you read in final role. And back to you, Erica. Thanks, Lori. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Chuck? Thanks, Erica, and thank you very much, Lori. And now's the time for the RegWatch segment of our program featuring nationally recognized healthcare technology consultant Stanley Knoxon. Stanley, good morning. A lot of news coming out of Washington these days. What do we need to know? Good morning, Chuck. CMS presented us with quite a number of Medicare payment rules in the last week or so, referencing almost every type of provider in the Medicare program. Final rules included the fiscal year 2020 Medicare hospital inpatient prospective payment system, uh, this rule adjusted wage index to help rural hospitals and increased operating payment rates for general acute care hospitals paid under the IPVS that successfully participated in the hospital inpatient quality reporting program and are meaningful electronic health record users. That increases approximately 3.1%. The rule also provided increased payments and additional pathways for new technologies. The fiscal year 2020 payment and policy changes for the Medicare inpatient rehab facilities continued CMS's efforts towards the eventual transition to a unified post-acute care system. This allows facilities to determine whether a physician qualifies as a rehab physician, that is a licensed physician with specialized training and experience in inpatient rehabilitation. The rule finalized updates to the PPS payment rates to reflect an estimated 2.5% increase and revise the case mix measure using some different quality indicators. The fiscal year 2020 hospice payment update rule better aligned hospice payment rates with the cost of providing care and finalizes modifications to the election statements by requiring hospices upon request to furnish an election statement addendum to uh, patients effective beginning in fiscal year 2021. Now, the new SNF final rule adopts CMS's patient-driven payment model effective October 1st, 2019 under the SNF prospective payment system for classifying patients in a covered Medicare Part A SNF day. Now, this new system utilizes ICD-10 codes to classify SNF patients into certain payment groups. This uh, uh, clearly makes coding much more important in skilled nursing facilities. To help ensure that SNFs have the most up-to-date ICD-10 code information as soon as possible in the clearest and most useful format, CMS is also finalizing a process for making non-substantive changes to the list of ICD-10 codes um, used to classify patients into clinical categories. The sub-regulatory process aligns with similar policies in the SNF PPS and the inpatient rehab facility uh, PPS. So, uh, these types of facilities will be getting uh, ICD-10 changes broadcast to them much more quickly. There was also a rule updating payment policies and rates for inpatient psychiatric facilities. Now, two very important proposed rules for calendar year 2020 were also issued. 
The physician fee schedule and MIPS proposed rule went on display at the Office of the Federal Register's public inspection desk on July 29th and will be available until the regulation is published on August 14th, with a comment period closing on September 27th. This rule increases scoring thresholds uh, to avoid penalties and get bonuses. It increases the weight for cost measures and reduces the weight for quality measures. It provides some burden relief to physicians, but most importantly, introduces the MVP or MIPS value pathways, beginning a transition to more specialty-specific grouping and measures closer to alternative payment methodologies. This will allow for better transition to value-based care with more administrative measures that can be calculated by CMS versus the clinician-submitted measures. The rule keeps EM codes roughly the same instead of changing categories as had been proposed. And lastly, the, CA, the calendar year 2020 Medicare Outpatient Prospective Payment System and ASC proposed rule provides uh, charge transparency for, for consumers, defines hospitals, standard charges, and items and services, sets requirements for making public a machine-readable file online. That includes all standard charges for all hospital items and services. CMS is proposing to establish a one-year exemption from medical review activities for procedures removed from the inpatient-only list beginning in calendar 2020 and subsequent years, and CMS is also proposing to add total knee arthroplasty, knee mosaoplasty, and three additional coronary intervention procedures to the ASC covered procedures list. Chip, uh, uh, Dr. Reamer, that, that goes back to you. A lot of information, and uh, hopefully folks can read it in my article that's on Talk 10 Tuesday this morning. That was a lot of information. Thank you, Stanley. That was Healthcare IT Authority, Stanley Nockamson. Stanley is the founder of Nockamson Advisors, LLC. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And Stanley, thank you very much for an excellent report. And as Stanley said, you can read his brilliant reporting on these changes both the proposed rule and the final rule in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor News. Thanks again, Stanley. Now, coming up, Dr. Megan Curtazio is going to explain what we all need to know about burnout. She's going to join us in 60 seconds. This is Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Are you planning to reach your career goals and position yourself as a leader in the industry by earning the CCS credential? Professionals with the HEMA's industry-regarded Certified Coding Specialist credential demonstrate tested data quality and integrity skills and a mastery of coding proficiency. Consider a HEMA's virtual exam prep to guide you through all seven domains you need to master for the exam. Purchase the bundle and receive the on-demand webinar series, virtual interactive learning sessions, exam prep book, and the exam voucher all for one low price. Learn more at ahima.org slash certification and plan to attend the October 17th virtual interactive learning session. This morning, our lead story is about burnout, especially what coders and clinical documentation integrity specialists need to know about burnout. We have two reports. We will first hear from Dr. Megan Cortazzo and then for the role that psychiatry plays in dealing with burnout, nationally prominent psychiatrist Dr. A. Stephen Moffick is going to join us. Here now is Dr. Megan Cortazzo. Good morning, doctor. Good morning, Chuck. Let's talk burnout. Burnout is defined as a long-term stress reaction marked by emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, and a lack of sense of personal accomplishment. In 2011, Mayo Clinic published a study that reported 45% of Americans' physicians 
at suffering from burnout. In 2018, over 400 physicians in the United States took their own lives. I want to emphasize that burnout is not a precursor to suicide. Suicide may occur due to mental illness and not necessarily from burnout, but let's not avoid the reality that both burnout and suicide are issues affecting physicians. Suicide is not new to physicians and has been described in the literature as far back as 1897. The rise in suicide rates are not exclusive to medicine as well. Since 1999, according to the CDC, suicide has increased by 33% in the United States. In 2018, Medscape published a survey of over 15,000 physicians about burnout and its potential causes. 44% of physicians describe themselves as burned out, 4% as clinically depressed, and 14% who had suicidal ideation. The cost to a physician practice that loses and must replace a physician is both disruptive and expensive. Continuity of care for the patient is interrupted, and it is estimated to cost a half to $1 million to replace another physician. When exploring the root causes for burnout with physicians, a consistent theme emerges, administrative work and the electronic medical record. It's paramount to understand that it's the electronic medical record where physicians are expected to write their notes, place orders, do their own billing, answer physician queries, ensure all quality regulations are met, and other additional duties that have little to no direct connection to caring for the patient. In fact, it is estimated that physicians spend an average of 20 hours a week on paperwork and administrative tasks alone. Many physicians feel that administrative tasks, if left to an expert who can navigate these systems, would free up time for them to be the scientists and physicians they train to become. The National Academy of Medicine is taking the problem of physician burnout very seriously. They're working with the government, academic institutions, and physicians to deliver effective solutions to this problem. University of Pittsburgh Medical Center has a physician-led group that is actively working on the issue. So how can CDI help physicians from burning out? Physicians view queries as a task that impedes them from doing the job for which they trained. When I look at the time of day that many of our doctors answer their queries, it's often after midnight. So steps that you can take to help physicians. Be aware of the situation and send that query if and only if it is absolutely necessary. Let your physicians know that you understand queries are a frustrating part of the job and teach them how to document better to avoid the query in the first place. Partner with them and partner with your IT team to figure out ways to streamline their documentation. In essence, be their ally. It will go a long way. Erica, back to you. Thanks, Megan. That was Dr. Megan Cortazzo. Dr. Cortazzo is the Medical Director for Clinical Documentation Improvement and Health Information Management at UPMC and Assistant Professor of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. Chuck? Thanks, Erica, and thank you again, Dr. Cortazzo. And to learn how psychiatrists can address burnout, here is Dr. H. Stephen Moffick. Addressing burnout has been a particular challenge for psychiatry because, like crime, xenophobia, and terrorism, it falls in the gray area between so-called normality and diagnosable mental illness. But we are making progress, and here is some of it. Psychological understanding is often counterintuitive to common sense. Take resilience. 
resilience is often touted as a universal good, and why not? Who doesn't want to come back with necessary help, stronger in some way after inevitable trauma or loss? So, not surprisingly, resilience has been called for as a protective factor against burning out. And that very well may be indicated for burnout in people outside of medicine, but not necessarily physicians. What may be different here? In the process of becoming a physician, developing a lot of resilience is generally inevitable. We have to learn how to bear the common stress of patients dying or worsening. What if this learned resilience is simply enabling us to keep plowing ahead at the expense of our own well-being, deny that we are burning out, and there thereby why physicians have the highest rate of burnout other than possibly veterinarians. Our resilience can allow us to keep working in a system that needs to change or even prevent us from seeking out a better system to work in. A possible solution? If your administration does not do this, and they should, use the Maslach or Oldenburg scales to periodically measure your own burnout to be sure it is not getting too high. You can even add a tool to measure resilience. High and rising scores of both burnout and resilience should sound a loud alarm. Psychiatrists should also help us to understand who is more vulnerable to burnout and thereby needs closer observation. A history of more personal trauma, given the everyday micro traumas in medicine, seem to be a factor. One possible solution Stanford Surgery Department provides a psychologist for mandatory periodic meetings with residents to discuss their work experience and their personal issues. Given that administrative policies, especially those that do not engage physicians in system decisions, are the major causative factor in burnout, we have to avoid a sense of learned helplessness in becoming complacent about the work situation. What might help here? From collegial, form collegial relationships that will allow group support, ventilation, and activism. In terms of burnout, we need to be our brothers and sisters keepers. And this, in fact, is a medical ethical principle. So let's use the upcoming Labor Day holiday about a month from now to renew our efforts to improve our labor conditions. Back to you, Erica. Thanks. That's Dr. H. Stephen Moffick, and he was talking about burnout. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks, Dr. Moffick. That was nationally prominent psychiatrist Dr. H. Stephen Moffick. And now it's time for our very popular segment here on Talk to Tuesday. That's called Talk Back, and a feature Dr. Erica Reaver. Dr. Reaver, let's hear from you. All right. Well, for those of you who are tuned in to hear what I have to say about Step 1, I apologize that I have to put you off until next week. Stick around, though, to hear my take on the final rule. It came out on Friday, and I was afraid it was going to trash my weekend. I was pleasantly surprised when almost all of the 1,492 CCMCC revisions that were in the proposed rule were nowhere to be found. I think our comments to CMS were fruitful. They felt that it would be prudent at this time to further examine the proposed severity designations to ensure that they would appropriately reflect resource use based on review of the data as well as consideration of relevant clinical factors. And they noted that they wanted to improve the overall accuracy of the IPPS payments. They are considering doing a phased implementation, but our job is not done. The final rule also states that this postponement will afford an opportunity to explore additional means of eliciting feedback on the current severity level designations, such as an open door forum to solicit feedback. Our good friend Jim Kennedy called me yesterday to discuss this. 
It is a concern that although CMS has medical advisors, none of the cooperating parties are physician organizations. Jim's focus is on preventing waste, fraud, and abuse by gaming the MSDRG system. I want to stop the pendulum from swinging the other way and preventing facilities from collecting reimbursement to which they are entitled for resources expended. CMS has a methodology to determine the appropriate CC designation. I am supportive of trying to quantify the impact rather than having someone assign CC designation by gestalt. That is, oh, I don't know, acute pyelonephritis seems like a CC to me. What do you think? However, the proposed rule was all over the place with this methodology, and the reasoning for many of the final determinations was a little suspect. I have to be honest with you, though. I have extensively noodled the fiscal year 2008 methodology, which they republished in the 2020 proposed rule, and I almost, but not quite, understand it. It is some variant of observed to expected in terms of charges subgrouped by CC designation. They compare three buckets, the index condition without a CC or MCC additional diagnosis, the index condition with only concomitant CCs, and the index condition with at least one MCC. Practically speaking, even though I don't fully comprehend it, if you look at the C1, which is the condition without an accompanying CC or MCC, if it is less than or right around one, which is the average consumption of resources, the condition will be deemed neither a CC nor an MCC. If it significantly exceeds one, and mind you, no one defines what is significant, you look at the C2 value. If the C2 value is hovering around 2, which is where the approximate value of what a CC group should be, it's a CC. If the C2 value is closer to 3, the impact is then probably an MCC. However, I think the explanation of the methodology is somewhat perplexing. In conclusion, I think going back to the drawing board was well advised, and I commend CMS for holding off. I would be happy to participate in any open forum, and I encourage any of you who are interested to invest your time as well. CMS is inviting us to give comments and suggestions for fiscal year 2021 by November 1st. Please see the attached document courtesy of Jim Kennedy. CMS, if you're listening, Jim, Tim Brundage, and I are up to the task if you need our assistance. All you have to do is ask. Back to you, Chuck. Wow, thanks, Erica, very much. Uh, that's going to be a wrap for our 380th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. And, Erica, I want to thank our panelists today, Dr. Megan Cortazzo, Laurie Johnson, Tim Powell, Dr. H. Stephen Moffick, Stanley Dockerson, and, of course, our co-host this morning, Dr. Erica Reamer. And I want to thank Dennis Jones for sitting in for me last Tuesday as I was able to enjoy some time off. And remember, no matter where you are, you can always listen to all the Talk 10 Tuesday podcasts anytime, anywhere, on any device. It's absolutely free. You can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do, rate us. Give us a review. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for IC10 Monitor and Talk 10 Tuesday. Thank you very much for being with us. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.